0: Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com.
1: Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
0: This is Mel Street Radio from PRX, and I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Pierre Cham says that Senegalese cooking starts with the value of terenga, a belief that.
3: When you share with someone your meal, that person is actually someone bringing blessings to you.
0: Today, we explore the heart and soul of West African cooking. It means being intuitive, generous, and in touch with your ingredients, which is why Pierre says Senegalese cuisine is much like Japanese.
3: There is so much in common between those two cultures. The rice, the way they do it in Senegal, the same way they would do it in Japan, they would take a portion of the harvest, put it on the altar, just to connect these ingredients to a bigger picture, the universe, and and to be grateful. Food and
0: philosophy at the West African table. That's coming up later on the show. But now I'm joined by journalist Jen Dahl, who's here to explain a puzzling new trend in entertaining at home. Her article for the LA Times is called, Should You Charge Friends to Eat at Your Place? Jen, welcome to Milk Street.
4: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So when I read this, I was going like, there's nothing in my life that prepared me for this. I don't understand this on any level. (laughs) I, I, I find it, I mean, there's just nothing about it that I understand. So I'm a lot older than you are. So take me through this in a way it helps me understand what's going on.
4: I will. But let me first say that I don't even think that it's about your age not understanding. I think that the explosion across the internet when these things happen and someone complains about it on Reddit is huge and across age groups and even cultures. So so don't – it's not you. <laughs> There's something going on. Now, you know, what, what happens – a lot and if you look on social media sites you know you'll see so many of these entries about people saying i was invited over to my friend's house for dinner they were cooking something they said come over they didn't say it's a potluck and after the fact they just through Venmo, request, you know, 30 or 40 or $50 as payback for the dinner. And so when I wrote the piece in the LA Times about a particular instance of this, I talked to etiquette experts, and they all said that this is actually just terrible, terrible, terrible etiquette. There is no way this is okay. Um, if you are doing it after the fact, and if you are in America, this is not what our sort of social norms are. The exceptions would be maybe if your friend group always does this and that's what you all know, you know, you get together on a Friday night and you all put in for tacos or something like that, then that's fine because it's not like a betrayal of the social compact. But in the cases where after the fact someone is charging you for a dinner at their house or tell you that you owe them $15 for your cocktail. Um, that's not really, that's not what we're doing here.
0: <laughs> that, that's the one that really, like, you go over, they make you an old-fashioned, and you get a bill <laughs> for $15. I mean, it's, it's almost like they're making money on this. I, I guess <laughs> I have a bunch of questions, so let me yeah, start start sure, at the beginning. Sure, sure. Is, is this something that's happening with large numbers of people, or is this, like, you, you know, very rare? Let's start with that.
4: Well, I don't. I don't really have the data on it, and I don't know if anyone does. But the amount of times I've seen posts like this, um, it does seem to be happening fairly frequently. I before we talked, I looked on a couple of sites, and I found numerous occasions of this happening. You know, like I think one couple had a wedding and they tried to charge people for their food there, which just seems wild. <laughs>
0: look, look, I can understand if someone, you know, doesn't have a lot of money and he or she calls up some friends and says, look, let's do a potluck Friday night. Everybody throw in 20 bucks. I'll do the shopping and cooking. Yeah. You guys can clean up, you know, yeah. that's fine. I, I mean, I think the the problem with this whole thing isn't that people are sharing the expense. It's that You are unannounced charging people, A, not just for ingredients, but it also sounds in some cases like for your time. Exactly. And the idea of charging a friend for your time to cook them dinner, I mean, (laughs) there is nothing in human history that would lead you to that point because the whole point is to do something for somebody else without getting paid for it.
4: Yeah. It turns what you've done – into something purely transactional right, and financial, exactly. and almost takes away the beauty of the effort. You know, Do you really want to have to say, yeah, my hourly rate is $100, and I cooked for three hours, except also I shopped for an hour. And you know, are you going to add all that up and say, this is what you really owe me? When presumably, in most of these cases, it was the idea of the person hosting in the first place to put it together. No one was forcing them to do it, right? Maybe,
0: maybe I should invite a bunch of people all and bill them all, <laughs> just and just see what see what happens. See what happens, or maybe invite people I, I really don't want to have over again, or something. I don't know. But um, I would ask a question about consistency. So, if you're going to do this, you better do this in all aspects of your life, not just single out the times when you want to get paid. Yes. But are you going to ante up and 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 say, "Hey, I'll pay my share." when someone else offers to pay everything.
4: Yeah. My guess is that it's not consistent. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yes. um, Good guess. Yeah. I, there, there's sort of a side note to this, which is um, there's a lot of discourse about how people split the bill. And I feel like this is adjacent somehow. And there are always arguments about, okay, my husband and I are vegan. We went to this Thing there were there was no vegan food. We only ate bread, and afterward they told us we all owed you know one hundred and seventy dollars or something like that. And so it's like that question of like in the reverse: if you're being part of a group, do you have to split the check, or is it okay to only pay your part of it? I'm curious what you think about that.
0: Um, I've uh, two or three times been in a situation where someone. Said, well, let's just go through and figure out what each of us ordered, mm-hmm. and and I just wanted to. Scr- I may have yeah. actually screamed.
4: <laughs> you know, that's just
0: so. I, I, it's such bad manners. I, mean, I I'm
4: wondering about like generosity, and if the problem is that we're not we're not focusing on generosity the way that we used to focus on generosity. And part of being a good host is to be generous and to sort of assume that what you're creating is bigger than the dollar signs attached to it, right? You're creating community and you're creating an experience. And even if your guests can give you nothing in return, it doesn't matter because the simple act of generosity is something that is good for you and feels good and, you know, is moral if you want to go there.
0: Well, I I think it's a lack of an individual's ability to see him or herself as part of a culture and a society. Yeah, I mean, there's some other examples though. Let's let's talk about some actual examples. There was one, a friend was invited to another's house and offered only water because she hadn't brought her own alcohol. Meanwhile, the friend who lived there made herself a Manhattan. Oh yeah, really?
4: <laughs> I mean that that's that is just beyond. Um, Sometimes they don't seem real. Like that doesn't seem like it can be real.
0: I wonder. And, and you you wrote about this. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that twenty years ago you'd actually have to ask for cash? Mm. Right. I mean, you, could yeah. you give me a check? Could you give me twenty bucks? Now, after the event, you can slip it into the digital main. You know, Venmo. Yeah. And do it in a way that's a little more secretive, and and less upsetting. Yeah. Does that I- does the digital part of this have anything to do with it?
4: I think the digital distancing is something, but there's almost like a kind of righteousness that um, it seems like people are demanding money from their friends. And I feel like the people who are asking for money would be equally comfortable taking $5 from you at the door. Um, So I don't know. I do think that digital, there can be some distancing and maybe that does help, but, but it's not the whole story.
0: So it, where does this all end? You know, if if I were a psychoanalyst, I would say, I think this is representative. It's sort of iconic for one of our great fears, right? Which mm-hmm. is that society becomes less personal. Our connections to other people become transactional. It seems like a very small ask, right? I mean, to be human, is like, don't charge for your guests at a dinner party right
4: we can start charging them per joke or um you know conversational tidbits
0: it's individuality run amok Hmm. that's what i think this is it's like you know you you only think about yourself because the group is just an opportunity to build people through venmo right
4: right? you're not thinking about the group as beneficial to you which it is you know, our being in community is really important to us individually as well. well I
0: guess not if you only give them water because they didn't break alcohol while you have your Manhattan.
4: Right? Yeah. Except that I think that those people are probably going to have fewer and fewer people coming over.
0: More red vermouth for them, I guess.
4: <laughs> yeah.
0: Jen, it's been a pleasure. Um, I don't know if we actually got to the bottom of it, but it's disturbing, amusing, entertaining <laughs> and frightening all at the same time. Thank you.
4: Yes. Thank you.
0: That was journalist Jen Dahl. Her article for the LA Times is Should You Charge Friends to Eat at Your Place? We Investigate. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, so steamed puddings. Yes. I'm kind of entranced by the concept, and I've done it quite a few times. I used to make them around Christmas, but I use actual suet. Yes. Beef fat for that, which sounds gross. Yes. But it's not. Right. And also, the thing I, I finally realized about steam puddings, it was a way of cooking something on top of the stove. You could sort of put it on the back burner and let it steam for two or three hours. But that's something that nobody makes anymore. And they're really good. You know, it's funny you should bring
5: up steam puddings because my grandmother, Ruth Moulton, who went to a cooking school in Boston, the Garland School of Cooking. And she was a fabulous cook. And every Christmas, we'd have it at our family farmhouse, which is in Massachusetts. And she would come and make steamed puddings with the suet. And it would be flamed at the table. Mm, yeah, we I thought, did that. And what I really loved about it was the hard sauce, which is what it's butter and brandy or butter. Yeah, that you have
0: on the side. I mean, fruitcake... First of all, good fruitcake is really good. Yes, I know. But the bad fruitcakes are our doorstops. When stops. she was bad, she was horrid. Yes. Right, right. So. All right. Well, we're bringing back English pudding onto the calls. Yes.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: Hi, I'm Lila, and my grandma has a question about using vodka in pie crust.
5: Okay, we know that people do that all the time. But more specifically, what is the question?
6: You want to know why recipes use both water and vodka instead of all vodka?
5: Because vodka, you know, evaporates as the dough cooks. And so as the water in the vodka evaporates, you would end up with an underhydrated dough. So it wouldn't have the proper structure. So that's why you can't substitute all of the water with vodka. You couldn't just make a straight vodka pie dough. When you combine water and gluten, which is in flour, and you work them together, you develop the gluten. And that's both a good thing because it gives structure and a bad thing if you overdo it because then you end up with a tough pie dough. So adding a little bit of vodka, which does not develop gluten and which the water in it evaporates, produces a more tender crust. But adding all vodka would not work. Chris, you agree with
0: that? Well, I was there when it was invented. <laughs> it was J. Kenji Lopez Al came up with this recipe when he and I worked together 20 years ago. Uh, a couple things though, I think this whole thing about tough pie dough and water is overstated. You don't really work pie dough that much like you would bread dough. Um, and some gluten will develop just because water's in, in contact with flour. There's some science to that, but it's not in contact for a very long time. I think what really makes the biggest difference in pie dough is the amount of fat. So if you have a lot of fat in your recipe, for example, a cup and a quarter of flour with 10 tablespoons of fat, if you use vodka or not, it probably doesn't matter because you have plenty of fat to coat the flour, but it does work and it does give you a slightly better, more tender crust. But you should also look at the fat content because the fat will coat the flour and also protect the flour from being in contact with water and forming gluten. So fat content and the vodka are both good things. Yeah.
5: Does that answer? Well, it does. You know, I kept I would read about how the vodka would help counter the gluten, but then nobody ever said, but you need a certain amount of gluten. So I hadn't heard that part of it as being part of the explanation. So what is the right proportion of flour to fat?
0: Flour to fat, a cup and a quarter is how much flour we use for a single pie crust, two and a half or double. Single pie crust, I use 10 tablespoons of fat, double, two and a half cups of flour, 20 tablespoons of fat. That's plenty of fat. And that will definitely give you a tender pie crust no matter what you do. Make sure you add enough water so the dough comes together and you let it sit in the fridge for an hour at least, maybe overnight. And then it's easy to roll out.
5: Well, and the thing about the vodka is that way you can add the extra liquid and it's not water. That's true. And it does evaporate. That's one of the main advantages of adding the vodka as well.
0: And the last thing, and I won't say any more about this for at least 24 hours, is make sure you cut the fat well into the flour. The big mistake people make is that they have big pieces of butter in the flour. Well, if you're not cutting the fat in, the fat's not protecting the flour from the water you want that flour if it's in a food processor by hand to turn slightly yellowish, right? The texture changes a little bit. It shouldn't be white and light and floury, it should be a little pebbly. That way you really coat the flour and you will definitely end up with a tender pie crust. Just you can't help yourself. So don't undermix the fat and the flour.
2: So, <laughs> and and it seems <laughs> it seems as though newer recipes talk about
5: mushing of fat instead of cutting it in. Is that... Well, you, um, you, you
0: mean smearing it on the... Um, counter. ...fresage, you so, mean on the counter?
5: Yeah. Or that just works. Or even squishing it so that you take your butter and you just squish it in instead of... Yeah, the it that's, the only problem weird. is
0: your hands. Depending if you have baker's hands, you warm you could warm up the butter, which is not ideal.
5: Right, but you can do that right. as a finisher. You yeah. know, if you got your dough, yeah. and a lot of bakers do, you got your dough to the point where the butter's almost mixed in. You dump it on the counter, and then you smear it, you know, <laughs> with the heel of At your hand, point. like two or three times max. And well, that'll that, give you nice
0: layers. Yeah, when it's baked, that'll
5: do the finish. Yeah,
0: that's nice. Yeah.
5: Okay. All right. All right. Well, Lila, it was nice to meet you, too. Yeah. (laughs) She had to go out and take our cat, who was scratching at the door, out.
0: She makes a great spokesperson. (laughs)
5: Yes. Tell Lila thank (laughs) you. Yes. Okay. Thanks for calling. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: This is Mill Street Radio. If you need a hand with dinner, give us a call. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843 or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
1: Hi, this is Addison from Richmond Hill, Georgia.
5: Hi, Addison. How can we help you today?
1: So my son is 13, and I think he wants to be a chef. At least that's what he's decided this past year, that he wants to be a chef when he grows up. And so I was just thinking, like, if you were that age, you know, and you were wanting to become a chef, You know, I've been trying to figure out, like, what should I get him for, like, birthdays and Christmas gifts and things like that. So what would you have wanted?
5: Well, a cooking class. And the best thing for a beginning cook is a knife skills class.
1: Knife skills. Okay. Yeah, because
5: that's sort of central to everything else that you do. But does he have any particular cuisines he's interested
1: in? This month it's pasta. Lots of Italian stuff.
5: Does he have a pasta, one of those Atlas hand crank rolling machines?
1: No, we don't. We usually just buy it like pre-made.
5: So he's learning how to work with dried pasta, but he might want to learn how to work with fresh pasta. In that case, you sort of do a themed gift, get him a really good pasta cooking book, the Atlas machine, and and then he can just run with it. Let's see what Chris has to say.
0: I have a very different take. (laughs) Really? When I went to college, I majored in primitive art. Don't ask me why. So... One year I volunteered at the Museum of Natural History and their collection there, and I realized after two weeks I hated it. I hated the museum. I hated the academia. I just hated the whole bureaucracy. So I would get him a job. I would get him a summer job. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Okay. I, I, for, forget no, all the. You're right. <laughs> just get him a job in like whatever you can get them, and just have them spend two or three months in some sort of restaurant kitchen, because I know lots of chefs as Sarah does, and. You know, it's not an easy career choice, so get him some real experience. Besides that, if you want to buy him a thing, get him a good knife and get him a really good cutting board. Those two things are really the basis for all cooking a cutting board and a knife. But absolutely, get that clam shack summer job and just (laughs) see what. If he is really excited in September, then he's passed the test, right, Sarah? Okay.
5: (laughs) Well, Chris is right, but... So let's say the young man just likes to cook, Chris. Do we want to kill his love of cooking?
0: Yes, <laughs> kill it now <laughs> no. because you don't want to kill it when he's thirty eight ah. and his back hurts.
5: I don't want to kill his love of cooking, please.
0: <laughs> no, but either he'll come out if he doubles down after the clam shack summer, this is what he should do. Addison, get him the atlas pasta yeah. machine Chub, and Chub. The,
5: Chub. and and the Got pasta it. cookbook. Yeah. You know, nurture this thing in him, so, yeah.
0: Well, all the best to him. Give him a knife and a job. See what happens. And a cookbook, yeah. Addison, thank you. Okay,
5: <laughs> bye. Awesome. Thank you.
0: This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Pierre Cham reveals how an African mother's sauce became mole. That's after the break.
7: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allegash White at home, too. Head to slash locator to find Allagash White near you.
4: For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. A few years ago, I spent three days in Dakar with chef and cookbook author Pierre Chum. He took me on a tour of the city, and he also brought me into the kitchen of one of his childhood friends. He's out with a new book of weeknight recipes called Simply West African. Hey, Pierre, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Chris? It's been a while. I You gave me a tour. How long ago now? Four or five years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I flew to Senegal, to Dakar, and uh, you were generous enough to spend a few days with me. and It, it was a really interesting city. The one thing I found, and you, I want you to describe this for our audience, is that huge indoor market. It, it was just awe-inspiring. You want to just describe it?
3: Yeah, it's called Marché Carmel. It's located like right downtown Dakai. so um, you know it's it's definitely a special experience. It's a circular-looking market that has two levels. You know, the outdoors one, which has lots of informal eating places where women just come and cook every day, like local dishes, Chebujan, which is the, you know, our national dish, is rice cooked in, with this um, stuffed fish, similar to a paella. That's the original jollof rice, actually. And you also have, you know, peanut sauce, or you have the yasa, which is the lemon and onion sauce that's cooked with grilled fish or grilled chicken over rice or millet. So all those are happening outside for workers, for people who can't afford a fancy meal, but can come and have like a very easy, you know, less than $1 kind of lunch. So this market, just walking through it is a feast for the senses. And, and I think that's what hit you when you first got there with me, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I just for people who've never been there, it feels like you're in a two-football field space. It's huge. <laughs> Um, could you um before we get to food, which I really want to talk about, um, could you talk about the north versus the south? Obviously, the north is more desert; the south is is greener. Uh, how that two parts of the country are different: the language, the food, etc.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. So so Senegal is like uh, it's located uh, in the most western coast of Africa and south of the Sahara Desert. So the northern part is, as you can imagine, arid. And that affects obviously the the food. You would see seafood on the menus and some type of grains that don't require much water. And then as you go in the South, the South is more lush, also coastal, so lots of seafood, but then the ingredients vary. You would see like coconut and and like fruit trees. The the other influences are also from the historical point of view, colonization. So Senegal was colonized by French in general, but you also have sub pockets, you know, in the south, which is a region called Casamance, has a strong Portuguese influence. Hmm. You know, as people, when they come, they bring their food culture and the, the French have the food culture that is still very much traceable around Senegal. If you remember, there's like these kiosks that sell baguette breads every single day, everyone in Dakar has baguette bread in the morning in street street corners of Dakar. You have like croissants, bakeries, and we don't grow wheat. So that's part of the French influence. You know, it's like still, you know, 60 years after independence, we're still importing the wheat and you have recipes in the south that have a a Portuguese influence. You know, you have even dishes Mm -hmm. that have a Portuguese names, like, like caldo. You know, caldo is like a, a fish stew in Casamas. You know, you also have a small community of Vietnamese in Senegal. And that community also comes from the French colonial past, which at the time they also had a presence in Vietnam. They called it Indochina at the time. So, you know, it's a a melting pot.
0: So let's talk about you and your new book, Simply West African. Um, It it really struck me that your approach to food is very similar to Japan in terms of sort of a almost a holy or a spiritual approach to it. And you talk about in your book four things, awaken intuition, practice presence, cultivate joy, share the love generously. So you are, you are almost a guru of the kitchen, <laughs> which I love because you're talking about food in terms that we don't really talk about it here very much, which is that it's about sharing, it's about community, it's about joy, it's about presence. You're bringing a philosophy to it and really a a way of acting around food, which is, I think, very different than just the taste. There's more to it than that.
3: Yeah. Thank you for for noticing. And yes, I think really food started this way. And and how to uh, really learn that is by looking back at the past and how our mothers were cooking. And for me, This is a lesson I've really learned as I was trying to translate those recipes from my mom, from my grandma into cookbooks, into like recipes that are coded with exact numbers. And they could never understand my obsession with these exact numbers and how many teaspoons and the degrees. And my mom never understood those questions. And she was always trying to get me back to cooking with the senses. You know, that was her thing. She was like, Numbers are good for guidelines, but they should not be the way you approach cooking. You should have them as guidelines, but approach cooking in a complete presence, you know. And if you are present, that means your senses are present. And once your senses are present, you would have a different understanding of those numbers because your those numbers would be, all relative to the circumstances of the uh, the environment, and you would smell and you would taste and you would look and you would touch all those things, giving you an opportunity to communicate with the ingredients. And it turns out it's not only a West African approach. It's also a Japanese way, you know, a Japanese way. I spent time thanks to uh, my wife who's from Tokyo actually, but spent time uh, exploring that cuisine, spent time there as well. And realizing that there is so much in common between those two cultures. You know, first of all, that, that that approach to the ingredient, that respect for the ingredient. And you go way back in the past where we were still growing the ingredients and taking it to the altar as a, a sacrifice. The rice, the way they do it in Senegal, the same way they would do it in Japan. They would take a portion of the harvest, put it on the altar just to connect these ingredients to a bigger the universe and, and to be grateful. So by being present at the market level, all the way into the kitchen and all the way to the moment where we're sharing that food that we prepare with everybody else, all those moments are part of the cooking experience and all those moments are opportunities to, to be present. And being present gives you so much more.
0: So um, let's turn to your favorite ingredient, fonio, Um, You gave a TED Talk about it a few years ago. And I love it too. But it seems that you really think this is a grain that it doesn't require a lot of water to grow. It tastes great. It's something that should be part of uh, the repertoire way beyond West Africa. So you you want to give me the sales pitch for that? Because you you really sold me when I listened to that TED Talk.
3: (laughs) Okay, I'll I'll try to give you the, the, the one minute sales pitch. I mean, you know, the, the the challenge we're facing today is that our food system has limited our diet, right? We are eating just four grains, rice, corn, wheat, and soy. And we've ignored like hundreds of other ingredients that are more sustainable. And we need to figure out a way to now integrate them into our global diet. So fonio is a grain that grows in that Sahel region that I mentioned. It's a rain-fed grain that's drought resistant that's very resilient and that's a nutrition powerhouse you know it's like it's gluten-free it has a low glycemic index which is really good for those who suffer of diabetes for instance and it cooks in five minutes it's quite 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 versatile so it's a grain that is uh, easy to cook with and it's quite delicate you know i believe it's the most delicate of all grains
0: You know, one of the things you talk about in the book, which I completely agree with, is sauces. You talk about sauces being critically important in West African Senegal. And I think that's so true because you can roast a piece of chicken or cook a piece of meat or some vegetables and the sauce is transformative. So yassa, you know, onions, mafe, red sauce, could you just talk about some of your sauces? Because I think the easiest way to take your cooking up a couple notches, it's just to master a couple of sauces which make all the difference.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. We forget that without the sauce, the, the dish is not what it is. Like you said, you can roast or grill or, or saute the ingredient, but the sauce is what makes the dish and plays a role that is so important that sometimes it's overlooked. And I have thought it was important that people approach West African cuisine by understanding the mazo sauces, because the mazo sauces are, are different in West Africa. You know, you have that mafe, the peanut sauce, right? The peanut-based sauce is like a grain-based sauce, you know. So it's mazo sauce in that you can substitute with other nuts or seeds. And that mother sauce influence, you can see it all the way in Mexico. When you look at the region that has a strong West African influence and people often don't know, but Puebla and Oaxaca. Those are the West African regions. There was a time where that part of the world had the largest population of captive Africans, and they brought their cuisine. Mm. You know, so the 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 mafé turned into mole. That's the same base, huh. nut base. Oh yes, oh yes, absolutely. And Afro-Mexican are claiming it, but not much, not many people are talking mm. about it.
0: That's fascinating. I didn't. I mean, now I think about it, the sauces are quite similar. Oh yeah.
3: Right? it's quite similar.
0: Well, there's a couple little recipes in your book I just thought were really smart, um like a ginger vinaigrette, you know, mm. or a parsley raw for pesto and the notion of combining ingredients a little differently to have brighter or more interesting flavors is is something we always, you know, I always look for when I traveled. You you mentioned a hot pepe soup for hangovers. So mm. is, how how spicy is this? This is pretty spicy.
3: Well, that one is the spicier the better. <laughs> also, depending mm. on how much you can handle, but the heat plays a role as a, as a remedy for the hangover. But that's the recipe that you see across the continent: pepe soup.
0: Now, you, when we were there. You said, "Well, we're going to go get barbecue for lunch," and we went to this incredibly cool place that was half inside and half outside, and these square grills, uh, and you'd sit around it and. uh the cook had skewered all sorts of meat, you know, chicken, beef hearts, etc. You just want to describe that because that, I really, really love that experience.
3: Yeah, it, it's a special place. I, I knew you'd love it. It's not the tourist place. It's the locals. As you see, you're surrounded by locals. And we call it Dibi. And Dibi is like, you can see it everywhere. It's very informal. You know, that place I took you to, as you see, it's like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's in ruins, right? The building in ruins and part of it is open, right. part of it is outside. And uh, at night, you can imagine, you know, there is no electricity. So everyone has lamps in front of their stalls. And like, you know, you only see the glowing red of the charcoal and then the meats, you know, all the cuts, all the offals, you know, and obviously the, the filet mignons and, the, you know, the shoulder. And then, you know, you have the seasonings, usually, you know, suya, which it is the, the popular one, is like a dry spice mix. So that spice mix is is usually served on the side, and you dip your grilled meat in it, and uh, you know, and you have you know sliced raw onions on the side, and you have the chili mixture. We call it chili jam. That's also on the side for those who want it to be a little spicier.
0: Last question: You're sitting down, about to have dinner, and you know, in Austria, someone might say "Mahlzeit," or you might say "Bon appetit." Is there a phrase in Wolof? That people do? Do people give a prayer? Is there a thank you? What what happens just before you eat?
3: The phrase in Wolof would be "nares ak jam." So "nares ak jam" means "may digest in peace," and it's it's uh, it's not as poetic as it sounds in Wolof, but it's uh, it's the way we would invite people to come as you come to share the meal, and and again, you know, this is a, a culture where as you share with people you are receiving blessings from people who are eating your meal so we have a, a our value called teranga if you remember that word teranga right. Right is a yeah, yeah it's the, the most important value in our culture and it, it's, it is when you share your meal with the guest whoever he is expected or not expected we believe that when you share with someone your meal that person is actually someone bringing blessings to you
0: Pierre, it's, again, a pleasure. uh, And thank you so much for giving me the tour. It was uh, phenomenal. And I guess, as you might say in Wolof, may you digest in peace. (laughs) Thank you.
3: Thank you, you, Chris. Always (laughs) a pleasure.
0: Thank you. That was Pierre Cham. His latest book is Simply West African, which he co-wrote with his wife, Lisa Katayama. This is Mill Street Radio. After the break, Adam Gopnik and I reveal our favorite food books of the year. That's coming up.
1: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com.
5: Moonpig.com
2: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all
0: Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's head into the kitchen with J.M. Hirsch to talk about this week's recipe, pasta rotolo with spinach and ricotta. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You know, you and I have been to Rome more than a couple times. It always yields (laughs) so many great recipes. But you came across, and this happens to me too, you come across something totally unexpected. You go to Rome, and here are the eight recipes I'm trying to find. You walk through a market... And, you know, turn a corner and all of a sudden you see something you've never seen before. And that turns out to be your favorite recipe on the trip. And I think that just happened to you with a form of lasagna, but it's not lasagna.
6: Right, exactly. I was in the Triofale Market, you know, walking around, looking at all the amazing food. And I come across a pasta shop that had these large trays of what I can only describe as what would happen if a jelly roll and a lasagna had a baby. Because it was all the classic lasagna ingredients, sheets of pasta, ricotta, spinach, but rolled up like a jelly roll and cut into thick slabs that you are intended to bring home and throw a little marinara on and bake and enjoy. I had never seen anything like it before. So are these
0: tubes, (laughs) these cheesy tubes, are they (laughs) open end? I mean, how do you
6: assemble this? So it's assembled by taking large sheets of lasagna. So imagine like a baking sheet size sheet of pasta dough and you smear it with your ricotta and your spinach and then you roll it up like a jelly roll and then you slice it into rounds about an inch thick. And that's when they sell it at the market, but then you bring it home and you arrange these rounds in a tray of a little bit of marinara and you bake it and then you eat it. And it is wonderful.
0: Yeah, I've had, (laughs) when I was there recently, you know, obviously ricotta and spinach is a classic combination. The thing that struck me, I had the nudo, the one that doesn't have any pasta around it, just balls of this. Mm. They're so light. I don't know whether it's, Their ricotta is different than ours, but boy, just feather-like, which is so antithetical to the American lasagna, which is, you know, just a stomach bomb, right?
6: Well, true. And, you know, you make a good point about the ricotta being different, and that was one of the challenges we faced in adapting this recipe for home kitchens in the U.S. Our ricotta does not behave the same way as Italian ricotta, and it took us a while to figure out what was going on. Because every time we would bake our jelly rolls, the filling would sink in the center. And we didn't understand what was going on. So we tested, 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 and tried a bunch of different ricottas. And we realized that Italian ricotta has a much lower moisture content than American ricotta, or at least commercially available American Mm. ricotta. So we kind of had to figure out a workaround. And I mean, as is often the case in cooking, the best way to fix it was the simplest. If it's too much water, what do you do? you drain it. <laughs> so we found we could get great results simply by taking commercially available ricotta and putting it in a mesh strainer and draining it for a while. And once that excess moisture was gone, it behaved huh. much more like the Italian ricotta. So we got much better results at that point. The only other challenge we faced was the pasta itself, because you know, in Italy, first of all, everybody and their brother is going to make giant sheets of lasagna at home. And If you're not going to do that, you're just going to go to the shop and buy it. Because, of course, in every little village, and every town, there are pasta shops where you can buy gorgeous sheets of fresh lasagna. In the United States, we're not quite so lucky. So we experimented. And while there are some fresh lasagna sheets available in the U.S., they're kind of hard to find. What is widely available are those smaller sheets of ready-to-bake lasagna, the ones that you don't even boil. And we thought that perhaps we could experiment with these. And we found that if we just very briefly blanched them, just to soften them up a little bit, we could actually layer them together, almost stitching them together, in fact, and create the large sheets of pasta that we wanted to create our jelly roll of lasagna. And they worked perfectly, actually. It was great.
0: J.M., thank you. Pasta rotola with spinach and ricotta, a... Different way of thinking about lasagna because it has all the same components, but vastly lighter and vastly better. Thank you.
6: Thank you. You can get the recipe for pasta rotola with spinach and ricotta at milkstreetradio.com.
0: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Adam Govnik and I will be sharing our top choices for food books of the year. Adam, how are you?
2: I am very well. Chris, how
0: are you? I'm good. It's that time of year where we look back in the world of books and cookbooks. So you and I both independently, we've not conferred, have picked three books. One is a, a recent cookbook. One is food writing, not a cookbook. And the other is an older book. Uh, and I'll let you get started with maybe your favorite recent cookbook.
2: I'd be delighted to. My, the cookbook I chose... Was the book Tender Heart by Hedy McKinnon? Mm -hmm. What makes it terrific is, first of all, it's all vegetable cooking. And we all want as much vegetable cooking in our lives now as we can possibly get. But in the past, as I'm sure you'd agree, a lot of pure vegetarian cooking had a depressingly kind of clinical and medicinal flavor to it, right? You make this because it's good for you. This is a book that's just alive with charm, it doubles as a memoir and as a cookbook, and in our search for ways of living virtuously on vegetables without depriving ourselves of pleasure. This book, Tenderheart, really does the job.
0: Yeah, I love Hattie McKinnon. We've interviewed her twice. Uh But I'm I'm going to give you a a more down the center book from Nancy Silverton, her new book, "The Cookie That Changed My Life." Uh. First of all, her backstory is amazing. She worked at Michael's in L.A., the first uh, you know uh, pastry chef at Wolfgang's Spago in 1982, co-founds La Brea Bakery, and in a horrible twist of fate, sold it and put all the money with Bernie Madoff, which did not end really badly, and she restarted her career. And she went, she went to do a book. This is the book I wish I had done. It's like corn muffins, angel food cake, chocolate chunk cookies, scones, you know, the American repertoire. But she really went back and rethought it in a very intelligent, professional way. For example, she thinks angel food cake is sort of a horrible, tasteless foam. <laughs> so to solve the problem, she creates an angel food cake that collapses on itself and has a little chocolate in it. So she creates something totally different. It's it's that kind of fresh approach that very few people have. It's not just the recipes work, but they're really well thought through. So mine is The Cookie That Changed My Life
2: by Nancy Silverton. Great title too. Um, My next two books, I'm kind of crowding two books into one slot here. These are food books that aren't exactly cookbooks, but are Teaching books. One is uh, Endangered Eating by Sarah Lohman. The second one is Ultra Processed People by <laughs> Chris Van Tullican. They're oddly kind of linked. Um, Sarah Lohman's book is all about all of the varieties and all of the good things that are vanishing from our tables, a subject that you and I have discussed in the past and that impels my search for uh, Stamens wine saps and Jonathan apples in, uh, in the uh, ocean of Fiji's in which we are drowning, um, she goes on way beyond apples and deals with um, everything from, um, from sugar to salmon. And um, it's one of those books, you know, that teaches us good lessons, but doesn't moralize at us too tiresomely. So I greatly um, enjoyed it. The Von Tuliken book was a book I actually wrote about for my home ship at The New Yorker, and it makes a pressing case for the dangers of ultra-processed food. In the piece I wrote for The New Yorker, which you may have seen, Chris, I raised some skeptical issues about whether it's really true that the food our grandparents ate was always, to return to the word of the day, virtuous, um, that in fact if <laughs> we break down olive oil and salt bacon into their preservative properties, I'm not sure that they are necessarily more wholesome than the things we eat now. But he certainly demonstrates that a lot of what we eat now in mass market food is not good for us, and it's a a useful and alarming book.
0: Well, as usual on this show, my role with you is to take a lighter, the the, the road most traveled. Um, This is one of my favorite books of all time by a guy called Dwight Garner. He's a New York Times book reviewer. The Upstairs Delicatessen. And the, the, the subhead is on eating, reading, reading about eating, and eating while reading. And to give you a sense, this will just explain who this guy is. The thing he's concerned about most every day is he attempts to shrink the hours between the morning's last cup of coffee and the evening's first drink. <laughs> and, and, and that's how he sees the entire universe. At 7 o'clock, he starts the martinis. His wife drinks wine. And they play a game, which I actually just bought, called spite and malice which is a form of dual solitaire, where the whole point of it is I- even if you lose, you try to irritate the other person. So th- <laughs> this is a life that started with sauerkraut was sliced up franks as a kid and sort of a horrible American version of Egg foo Young. And now he is just in love with food. And I'll, I'll end with this quote he uses, many quotes, but one from John Updike about food. He says, it never bites back. It is already dead. It never tells us we are lousy lovers or asks for an interview. It simply begs, take me. It cries out, I'm yours. So Dwight Garner, the upstairs delicatessen, absolutely marvelous guy and a, just a fabulous book.
2: Typically, an Updike quote would, would lift our, our whole conversation. Yeah. Um, it leads me naturally to my beloved vintage book. I was walking down a street in Williamsburg, in Brooklyn, on my way, to of all things, to a boxing gym, when I saw on a table of um, secondhand of old and used books a book by the wonderful M.F.K. Fisher, which I did not know. It's called An Alphabet for Gourmets. It has wonderful drawings by Marvin Billick. It comes to us from the 1940s, I think 1948 originally, and it is just what it claims to be. It is an an alphabetic book. E is for um, exquisite. F is for family, K is, what else, kosher, L is for literature, N is for nautical, and on and on. And in each uh, place, we get one of those exquisite, melancholy little essays of which Mary Fisher, as her friends called her, specialized. It was a delight to find. I've discovered it's been reprinted a couple of times in the last 20 years, So I was blessed to find the uh, original edition. And it's a, um, uh, what can I say? It's just a delight to add to any cook's uh, library.
0: Well, I'm going to head back into the world of cooking with Mother Joffrey. her first book. Uh, it's now, it's 50 years on, An Invitation to Indian Cooking. I just interviewed her uh, for this show. And first of all, she's 90. Wow. She is funnier, has more personality, and enjoys life more than the two of us put together still. Uh, and she's had this amazing life, which started in India, of course. In the summers, they move up north, and they'd have these picnics in these hidden valleys with waterfalls, And they would put, they're called sucking mangoes, or or used just for their juice. They put them in the cool water at the end of the picnic. They would cut off one end and suck out the juices. She won the Best Actress Award at the 1965 Berlin Mm -hmm. Film Festival. And she just did, a year ago, she appeared in a rap video with Mr. Cardamom. And uh, she was was absolutely fabulous. And, And the book, still today, you know, her quote about Indian restaurants is, These establishments invariably underestimate both the curiosity, the palate of contemporary Americans. And and what she has done is to go way beyond that into Indian cooking even 50 years ago. So here's someone who was trained as an actress, wrote many, many books, I think almost 30 of them and uh, I think still has one of the seminal books uh, on the topic, Mother Joffrey.
2: I have that book in my library. Couldn't agree more. I actually had the chance to have dinner with her once at one of the few Indian restaurants in New York of which she approved. This was about 20 years ago, and I agree. She raised the brow of American dining uh, by making us aware of the true excellence of Indian food. Can I just read to you, Chris, to close my part One sentence from M.F.K. Fisher, she's talking about how a famous writer once said that his idea of heaven was eating foie gras to the sound of trumpets. And she says, my idea of heaven that night and this night too is fresh green garden peas picked and shelled by my friends to the sounds of a cowbell.
0: Well, then I'm going to have to end with a (laughs) quote too. Please. Uh, A quote from Zadie Smith. This is from Dwight Gardner's book. There is no great difference between novels and banana bread They are both just (laughs) something to do.
2: And both delicious when well done. There we have it. Adam, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to share pages with you, Christopher.
0: That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer at The New Yorker. To learn more about our book recommendations, you can head to MilkStreetRadio.com. There you can also find my interviews with Hetty McKinnon, Madder Joffrey, and Nancy Silverton. And stay tuned for my upcoming interview with Dwight Garner. That's it for today. Don't forget that you can find more than 250 episodes of our show wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about everything we have to offer at Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get all of our recipes, access to our live stream cooking classes, and also learn about our latest cookbook, Milk Street Simple. Check us out on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram at 177milkstreet.com. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening.
1: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsaba, Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubub Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.